Well, we have a very daunting task before us. Um, really, in my humble opinion, uh, the most important topic of our weekend. And unfortunately, this is the most important topic, I think, of the weekend. But we have two very significant hurdles that will limit us to some degree in doing justice to this, uh, what I would consider an all-important topic. One of those hurdles is our supposed familiarity with the topic. You've heard the phrase that familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I don't think any of us would say we have contempt for this topic at all, but Another thing familiarity breeds is lukewarmness. And I fear that in myself and perhaps in us, we may struggle with going through this topic, um, which we have looked at before, and looking at it as something that we are familiar with. Um, we've heard the story before. We know the facts of the cross. And we will be tempted to enter into a corporate self-satisfaction and lukewarmness on a topic that we're told it's sin to be calm and unimpassioned about. So that's our first hurdle, intellectual neutrality, due to a supposed familiarity with something that we are going to be studying for eternity. The second hurdle that we have, uh, at least as great and perhaps uh, greater, is that the one dealing with this topic this morning is truly a fallen, weak, blind, um, lukewarm uh, human being. And this is one of the topics, as I've thought about it, it's better not to talk about than to not do justice to it. So we don't want to allow that to happen this morning. We don't want those hurdles, as real as they are, to um, define us, to limit us, or to deny us the presence and the blessing of the Holy Spirit and the truths which we are so uh, in great need of. So I want us in our time this morning to just do what Ellen White advises in four testimonies, 462.1. We must gather about the cross. It's a simple, simple admonition that we would gather about the cross. So I want to invite you to pray with me and for me that the time we spend together this morning will be profitable. That those two hurdles I mentioned uh, will be hurdles that we can surmount under the influence and blessing of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to kneel and pray, and I want to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just come to you. Um, I'm not like Isaiah, but I want to pray his prayer that uh, I am a man of unclean lips, to one degree or another in the midst of an unclean people. And I just want to pray for your Holy Spirit that the subject that we're looking at this morning, which is of such vital significance, won't be damaged by our corporate lukewarmness or my individual failings as a human being. Please send your Holy Spirit that we can see your love for us, your sacrifice for us, your goodness to us anew. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting to me that the first thing that Ellen White talks about when she talks about the ATA message is something very specific, and it's not what we usually hear when we hear people talk about the ATA message. If you read a moderate amount of material, um, about the ATA message from a variety of authors. There's a fair amount of touching on, that was a discussion on the law in Galatians, that there was some controversy about that. 
And Uriah Smith and A.T. Jones had a personal beef about which of the ten horns in Daniel were referring to which countries. And those issues, which were relatively minor, uh, sort of resolved themselves within a few years after 1888. Other times, you'll read that the most important thing that we learned in 1888 was, quotes, righteousness by faith, unquote. And while that's a true statement, that's not the first thing Ellen White mentions when she's talking about the 1888 message. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world what is that to bring? So what is this? What's the first thing she's going to mention? Our topic for today, the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. So when she says, what's that 1888 message about? What's that stuff Jones and Wagner were talking about? 1,821 pages in the 1888 materials. And I heard one educated speakers say that was a shortened version, that there was about 3,000 pages that uh, the White Institute shortened down to 1,821 pages. When she summarizes that material, she says it was about the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's why we have this topic at this conference. Because when you boil down the 88 message, this is the first thing she says we need to pay attention to. Now I want to spend our time together this morning looking at what I would call two underappreciated realities about the cross. Two underappreciated realities. Now one of those realities that we're going to look at second is that the cross as a principle throughout universal history is broader than the cross event. I want to say that again. The cross event as a principle in God's universe is broader than just 33 years in Jesus' history and broader than just Gethsemane and Calvary. And we want to look this morning at where that cross principle is not just in Jesus' life for 33 years or for the final few hours of his life, but where do we see that cross principle as the fundamental reality of how God has related to creation? The second underappreciated reality that we want to look at is that the sufferings of Christ are not just his sufferings, but they're the sufferings of divinity as an entity. When we, when we look at the cross as the sufferings of Christ only, we have a very limited view of what was happening at the cross and around then. The sufferings of Christ are the sufferings of the Father and the sufferings of the Holy Spirit. We're told that all heaven suffered with Christ. All heaven suffered with Christ. Well, that would certainly include the Holy Spirit. Right? We're told in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit groans with things that can hardly be uttered. Now, do you suppose that those groanings of the Holy Spirit apply merely to humanity? And that when Jesus was suffering, the Holy Spirit was aloof and distant from that? In some ways, he really is the forgotten member of the Godhead. The sufferings of Christ are the sufferings of the Father, and those are the sufferings of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. That's an existential statement about their relationship to each other. When you're one with someone, what they experience, you experience. What they feel, you feel. 
Let's look at a couple other passages that bring this out. This underappreciated reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What Jesus felt, the Father felt, the Holy Spirit felt. What does it mean to be in someone else? There's this in language in the Bible. It's not a spatial statement. It's not a, a statement of geography or physical proximity. It's a relational statement about harmony, sympathy, and oneness in experience. So when the Bible says that God was in Christ, it's saying the experience that Jesus had was the experience that God had. Sometimes in my work, we take care of children that are coming to the operating room, and we do something called a parent present induction, PPI. Because sometimes kids are anxious, nervous. In fact, most of the time they're anxious, nervous, crying, scared about what's going to happen. So we have the parents come with them into the operating room until the child goes off to sleep. And then the parent leaves and goes to the waiting room. And as I've watched those experiences over time, it many times is more traumatic for the parent than for the child. And I've wondered, why is that? And I think it's because the parent recognizes that all the time they've had that child, four years, five years, ten years, they've been responsible for and taking care of that child, preventing danger from affecting them, giving them blessings to help them out, taking care of them. They've been responsible for their well-being, for their safety, for their education, for their growth. And when there's that separation time, when the parent needs to leave the operating room, all of a sudden they're leaving their child in someone else's hands. And that's a very disconcerting and scary experience for them. And it's very analogous to when God gave his son first to us as a race and then separated himself from his son after he'd been in a relationship with him, first for eternity, and then as a human for 33 years, and he said, I've been protecting you. I've been one with you. I've been blessing you. But now I have to step back. And in a sense, God's suffering was at least equal to Jesus' suffering, just in the same sense that that parent, as they leave their child alone in the hands of someone else. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. John 16, 32, Jesus looking forward to the cross says, Indeed, the hour has now come that you will be scattered and you will leave me alone, all of us. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me in this. Jesus making a faith statement. As he goes through the experience, he feels forsaken. But as he looks forward to that experience by faith, he says, I'm going to feel abandoned and alone, but I know by faith that you are there with me. Because my sufferings will be your sufferings and the Holy Spirit's sufferings. Psalms 139, prophesying about Jesus' experience. Jesus speaking here, in a sense. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I go from your presence? Jesus is acknowledging, as I go through this, you're going to go through it with me, whether I feel that's the case or not. What I'm gonna about to suffer, you're going to suffer with me. In fact, he goes on and says, if I make my bed in hell, if I'm going to the second death, behold, you are there. Jesus says, by faith I know you are there. My feelings don't think that to be the case, but by faith, if I'm in hell separated from you, you're there with me separated from me. Six times in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, not that Jesus is our Savior, all that's certainly true, it says, God our Savior 
we tend to, in so many ways, separate out the ministry and the experience and the reality of God the Father and God the Son. And I almost think that Satan is perfectly, not perfectly happy, but content if we see Jesus as our Savior and God as the one who's a little less of our Savior, a little more reticent perhaps. He's the, he's the one that's the neutral overseer of things to make sure that Jesus doesn't err too far on the mercy side. Because we need to be equitable and fair and just in this universe. And Jesus is sort of over-merciful. And Satan is perfectly comfortable with that thought process about God. Because that's what the great controversy is about, right? It's about denigrating God's character in our mind. We do this with the judgment too, right? Don't worry, Jesus is your judge. What's the implication? Thank goodness God's not your judge. So we're always separating them out consciously or subconsciously and we do the same thing here at the cross. The sufferings of Christ are the sufferings of the Father are the sufferings of the Holy Spirit. Ellen White brings it out this way. Here's God's Amazing Grace, page 161, paragraph 5. God suffered with his Son. As the divine being alone could suffer. God has the capacity to suffer in ways that we can't even process because he has ways that he can love in ways that we can't process. The depth of that eternal love and relationship that he had with his son is the depth of his capacity to suffer when that separation occurs between he and his son. God suffered with his son as the divine being alone could suffer. And what was the purpose, not just of Jesus suffering, what was the purpose of God suffering? in order that the world might become reconciled to him. There's a relationship between our appreciation of God the Father suffering for us and our ability to be reconciled to him. Just like when we see Jesus suffering on our behalf, that carries weight in our thinking in us being reconciled to him. But if again, if we distance the Father and the Son, we distance the reconciliation that we feel with the Father. Jesus is my Savior. God, sort of, yes. And that reconciliation does not occur because we've distanced the suffering between the two. She goes on in the same book, page 188, paragraph 3. God suffered with his Son. In the, now, notice the time she's defining when he's suffering with his son. God suffered with his son in the agony of Gethsemane, the death of Calvary, the heart of infinite love, and she's referring here to the Father's heart. In Gethsemane and on Calvary, the Father's heart paid the price for our redemption. God the Father paid a price for our redemption. Thirteen manuscript releases 170, I'm sorry, 370 paragraph 2. In every pang of anguish endured at Calvary, we behold the throes of paternal love. When we look at Calvary, we're not just seeing Jesus' love for us. We're seeing divinity's love for us. The Father himself travailed in the greatness of his almighty love in behalf of a world perishing in sin. The Father himself. In the scenes that transpired in the judgment hall and at Calvary, we see that the human heart, we see what the human heart is capable of when under the influence of Satan. Christ submitted to crucifixion, although the heavenly host could have delivered him. The angels suffered with, this, with Christ. And then she makes this incredible statement. God himself was crucified with Christ. For Christ was one with the Father. 
Remember John chapter 10, I and my Father are one. When the crucifixion happens, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit being crucified together. If we see Calvary just as Jesus' suffering, we're missing one of the main points that we're to learn. We need to see God crucified with Christ. I think the reason that this happens, if our attention at Calvary is primarily on bodily suffering, nails in the hands, crown of thorns on the head, nails in the feet, if that's our primary focus, then of course that's going to be Jesus' suffering. But if that's the small part of what's going on at Calvary, and the large part is what's going on in the heart of mind of Jesus, then we can understand how she can make a statement like, God himself was crucified with Christ. Because the larger part of Calvary is not the physical experience that Christ had. The larger part of Calvary is what was going on in the heart and mind of Jesus, which is going on in the heart and mind of the Father and the heart and mind of the Holy Spirit. So I would submit that that is underappreciated reality number one. Underappreciated reality number two is we need to see the cross as a principle before we see the cross as merely an event. The cross is not something that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit did once 2,000 years ago and they hadn't experienced it before that event, and they certainly weren't going to experience it after that event. The cross is a principle whereby God governs and lives and exists in this universe. Let's look at a couple of ways that this is true. Seeing the cross as a principle and not merely as an event. Well, we would submit that creation is ultimately a manifestation of the principle of the cross. So back in eternity past, the Trinity existed together. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. And they didn't just get sort of, man, we've been hanging out together for so long. It's getting kind of boring, just the three of us. We should create to sort of have some more interest in our sort of mundane, dry, boring existence. No, they said, we have an incredible experience with each other. And we could just keep on having this incredible, wonderful, loving relationship and fellowship and friendship and, and doing things together. We could just keep doing this amongst the three of us. Or we could, we could make others and share this with them. And because God is love, as we're told in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, he naturally made the choice to create, to give. All throughout the Bible, loving is equated and synonymous with giving. John 3, 16, right? For God to love the world that he gave. God loved, therefore he gave. Galatians 2, 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.25. A good verse for my anniversary. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So love is always synonymous with giving, and there's other references there. So God loved, therefore he has the need and the desire and the plan to give, therefore he creates. But in the decision to create, he recognized that rebellion was going to occur. 
So that decision involved the decision. If we go down this, we can just stay together, the three of us, as it is now. It's great. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Or we can create and share and bless others. But that's going to cost us something. That's going to cost us something. Revelation 13.8 says that the lamb was slain from the foundation, not of planet earth merely, but the Greek word is cosmos. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the cosmos. When they decided to enter into that creation process, some biblical evidence indicates beginning with Lucifer. They said if we start this process, it's going to cost us a cross. But they went ahead anyway. Cross principle throughout eternity number two. In what other sense is it true that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world? Let's unpack that a little bit more. In what sense, in what sense is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? I would say this is one very important sense. God takes the blame. From the beginning of sin, God has been bearing the blame and accusations of Lucifer, of his fallen comrades, and of humanity for all the problems that exist in the universe. This is very easy to see. Genesis chapter 3, Adam said, not the woman she gave me of the tree, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave of the tree. Now, why would he add that whom you gave me part? He's doing two things, right? He's shifting responsibility and blame away from himself to as many sources as possible. Source number one, the woman. Source number two, God. Now, why is he doing that? Because he needs to deal with the guilt and shame that he's beginning to feel. Because if he has to deal with it, it's too crushing. There's only two ways to deal with guilt and shame. One is to take ownership of it and embark on the process of repentance. Number two is to shift responsibility elsewhere. Eve does the same thing. Eve said, the serpent whom you created deceived me. So God takes the blame allowing us to shift guilt to him so that we won't have to bear something that we cannot bear. We are, in a sense, by shifting blame, shifting responsibility, that's part of what it means to slay the lamb from the foundation of the world. He takes ownership of that. He lets us think he's the bad guy in the equation so that we can go free at least for a long enough period until he can reveal his goodness and bring us to repentance. How do we know what would have happened? Let's say, let's say God didn't let that happen. Let's say he confronts them and says, no, I put you in a perfect garden with a perfect character, with a perfect wife, and you guys messed up. And let me show you what's going to happen because of your messing up. And he showed them the entire history of planet Earth. We're told in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that when Adam and Eve saw a leaf fall from a tree, they wept more bitterly than men nowadays weep when they lose a loved one. So, so their psychological state was such that they had not encountered death. They hadn't seen death. They saw a leaf fall. I'm from New England. We celebrate leaves falling. Thousands of people come to New England to see leaves falling. They saw one fall and they wept more bitterly than we do at our loved one's funeral. Can you imagine if God had opened up to them at that point the entire chain of human woe? They would have died. The mental, psychological weight and anguish would have crushed them. And God gave them an escape mechanism. He said, you can blame me. You can say, I share responsibility. You can blame each other. 
Calvary alone can reveal the terrible enormity of sin. If we had to bear our own guilt, it would crush us. Signs of the Times, November 4, 1903. She says this in Great Controversy. This is, this is, she's talking about false religious systems, but she says they, or we could say we, must have some means of quieting our conscience. Two ways to do that. One is shifting blame to someone else. Number two is drowning in addiction so you don't have to think about it. It just sinks into your subconscious. Letter 184, 1901, she says it this way. Bringing it down to our shifting blame position. We may feel like we don't engage in this, but we do. We may have to remain here in this world because of... Now, we want to say, why are we remaining in this world so long? Well, theologians have given us an exit ramp to saying God in his sovereignty has picked a time and he's all wise and we need to be patient and wait till the time that he has picked comes about. And then we can sit in comfort and say, I don't know what's taking him so long. What could he possibly be waiting for? Look at the chaos and suffering around. Why doesn't he come? We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, now she's, she's not engaging in swearing. Like if you go to work, you'll hear people say, for Christ's sake. That's not what she's saying here. She's saying, please, for Jesus' sake, for God's sake, don't add sin to sin. What is, what is the sin being added to the sin? The first sin is our involvement in the delay in the first place. And then the sin that we would add to that is saying, no, no, it's not our problem. It's God that's delaying it. She said, don't add sin to sin by charging God with the consequences of our own wrong course of action. There's something that weighs in our experience that we're loath to appreciate. We have the salvation idea, consciously or subconsciously, that we're the ones that want to be with God and he's a little reticent and resistant. The Bible story is that we have a baseline, fundamental, human nature, animosity, and enmity towards God. And the salvation process is God trying to work out that enmity and animosity from our experience. The carnal mind is at enmity against God. Romans 8, 7. Romans 5, 10. We are his enemies. Ephesians 2, 3. We are by nature children of wrath. Now, some people interpret that as we're by nature children of God's wrath towards us. Read the passage. The next verse is, but God, who is rich in mercy. But wait, you just said we're by nature the children of God's wrath. No, that's our wrath towards him, our enmity towards him, not wrath from him towards us. Paul's saying we're by nature children of wrath towards him, but God is rich in mercy towards us. Acts chapter 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together for what purpose? Against the Lord and against his Christ. This all has its origin in the great rebel, she says. Great controversy 670. The aim of the great rebel has ever been to justify himself and to prove the divine government responsible for the rebellion. So from the beginning of sin, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the cosmos as Lucifer began shifting responsibility away from himself to God. But Isaiah chapter 14 gives us 
the solution to this all, the resolution of this all. After describing Lucifer and his condition, I will be like the Most High, I will exalt myself. As that passage in Isaiah 14 goes on, it says this, referring to Lucifer. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man, Lucifer, who made the earth to tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the earth as a, the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? You have destroyed your land and slain your people. Finally, that lamb that was slain up in heaven from the beginning of the cosmos, when God made that decision to create, true responsibility is taken. And we see, you know what? It wasn't God all along. That enmity I had in my heart towards him was purely from my perspective and from Satan's perspective. He's always loved me. And shift, blame has finally shifted where it belongs. Number three, the cross event as a cross principle. What else does it mean that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world? Others have touched on this a little bit. But we need to remember in all their affliction, he was afflicted. So again, what are we doing? We're looking at the cross not merely as an event, but as a principle that defines God's existence throughout all eternity. In all our affliction, Isaiah 63, 9, he is afflicted. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and my Father are one, from God's perspective towards us, God would say, I and those people are one. And in all their affliction, I'm afflicted. Hebrews 4.15 says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The Greek means the word touch there is to be affected with the same feeling as another. The same feelings I have as I go through them, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have with us. Judges chapter 10, verse 16. His soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. In an incredible verse in Psalms 56, verse 8, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? God is saying, you can put your tears in my bottle. You can put all your tears into my bottle. Don't put them in your bottle. Put your tears in my bottle. My bottle has the capacity to handle it. You can fill my cup up. Don't keep them in your bottle. An incredible quote. It's been alluded to, but let's break it down for just a couple of minutes. Education page 263. Those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. True or false? I mean, 99.99% of what we hear about Jesus' return is because we have an interest in accomplishing the gospel commission because we want to change our circumstances, our situation. Those who think of the result of hastening and hearing the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. Few think of its relation to God. Now what's its? It's the hastening or hindering the gospel proclamation. How many times do we, do we hear, we need, we need to get off this planet? We need to bring this to an end. We need to get busy to finish this up because it's tough down here. Few think of the relation of hastening or hindering the gospel to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross principle extends from eternity past to eternity future. It's not limited to Christ's life. 
Well, when would we say that suffering began then? All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin. Well, when did it begin? Before the fall of Adam and Eve, at the fall of Lucifer, God's suffering began at the fall of Lucifer. And it didn't end with his ascension. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses. You know our senses are dull because Adam and Eve cried when a leaf fell and we see millions of leaves fall and rejoice. Our senses are dull and they, they almost have to be, right? The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin is brought to the heart of God. The heart of infinite Father is pained in sympathy. This was the purpose of the 1888 message. To shift our focus away from ourselves to others. The others being God and the other others. As Bill Bray said this morning. The focus was to be, that's why Ellen White can say, the purpose of justification by faith, one way to say it is to lay the glory of man in the dust. The other way to say it is to shift our focus from everything and how it relates to me to how things relate to God and to others. She goes on, our world is a vast laser house, a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Well, why shouldn't we allow our thoughts to dwell on that? That's, that's reality. That's going on out there. Because if we know from experience, if you dwell on what's going on in this world too long, she goes on to say, did we realize as it is, the burden would be too terrible. And she said, with Adam and Eve, it would crush us. We have only X amount of psychological and emotional capacity to deal with what's going on around us. And when we exceed that capacity, we literally are crushed. We, we go insane. Our physiology starts to break down. She finishes this statement by saying, remember, our world is a vast laser house, seen a misery that we dare not allow our thoughts to dwell upon, and did we realize as it is the burden would be too terrible, yet God feels it all. Revelation 13:8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God feels it all. There's a verse in 2 Peter where Peter talks about how scoffers will come and say, oh, where's the promise of his coming? Things are just the same as they've always been. And then he goes on, he says, what? With God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And I've always heard that interpreted as this. Yeah, things are terrible down here. It's a disaster. But hey, listen, even though it's a thousand years of suffering for us, it's just like a day for God, it's, you know. He's outside time. A day is as a thousand years. So yeah, it's terrible down here, lots of suffering. But you know, from God's perspective, all that thousand years, it's just like a day. I think we have that completely backwards. One day here is like a thousand years for God. Because he feels it all. One day here is like a thousand years for God. He sees everything that's going on. Heaven sees all that's going on. And I wonder why am I so cold and lukewarm? God feels it all. Now this finishing of this statement you can respond to in one of two ways. A sense of obligation and weight or a sense of opportunity and privilege and hope. In order to destroy sin and its results, 
God gave his best beloved and he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring this scene of misery to an end. Is that good news? It's good news, isn't it? We, we, we can play a part. We can influence this. It's not some arbitrary thing. God just rolled the heavenly time dice and like it came out to 20, who knows what. We can have an influence. And God sent a most precious message to convert our thinking. To convert the way we relate to God and to each other. Actually make us to care about each other. To care about God. I want to interject here. One of the most profound pieces of religious literature outside of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that I've ever encountered. And it's a poem written by one of my spiritual mentors and maybe some of you, a gentleman named Robert Wieland. And most people who know Elder Wieland wouldn't consider him a poet, a theologian, a pastor, but they wouldn't consider him a poet. They didn't know that side of him. And I'm only aware of him writing one poem. I could be wrong. And if you'd like to get a copy of this poem, it's in a book called Corporate Repentance. And if you want to understand what corporate repentance is, this poem will define for you what corporate repentance is. It starts with a line that if taken to heart by Seventh-day Adventist Christians, myself included, by Christianity at large, by the broader religious world, including those in the secular world who consider themselves atheists, if we had this perspective, just from the first line, it would change how we do religion. Lord, I feel sorry for you tonight. Religious systems in this world are self-focused. Pick a religion. Pick a denomination. An atheistic view of religion. That whole edifice that this earth exists on is feeling sorry for ourselves and getting ourselves out of the situation. Now, there is a place for appreciating our condition. This is not a great situation in this fallen world. And God has given us a solution to this situation. But the ultimate resolution is when we start to feel sorry for God. Our focus shifts from ourselves and becomes focused on him. Lord, I feel sorry for you tonight. A sheltered child, I sleep secure, content. No sword-like piercing pain of tortured folk on lonely sick of bed stabs my sovereign skin. I can change the channel. I sense no anguish, dread in dying streets, no tattered waves from Africa besmudge my windows with their dirty hands, or peer inside with hungry eyes that plead for love. Yet they crowd around your windows looking in. No cursed untouchables on Bombay streets beg leave to make my law on their bed tonight. I hear no heartsick sob and vice-cursed haunt, no curdling scream of suicide's dark leap, nor soldiers' pain-racked gasp in alien land. I sense no shock of riven flesh in crash on bloody road. I cannot even surmise the reason for my next-door neighbor's tears. We barely know our neighbors. But through the starlit hours, you may not sleep. You dare not look the other way, avert your gaze. You watch each twitch of pain and count our size, yours the helpless agony, to feel our universal tragedy. Do you see corporate repentance? Corporate repentance has this bad name for some reason. 
This is corporate repentance. Identifying with God's situation and feeling a burden for his agenda, for his suffering, for what he wants to do. Lord, I feel sorry for you tonight, but is there something I might do to help? Is there something I might do to help? The other thing Elder Whelan used to talk about, talked about a lot of things, but was he talked about the two girls at the wedding. And both those girls come down the aisle to meet the groom. The first one down the aisle is the flower girl. And she's beautiful. She's dressed up. And the second girl down the aisle is beautiful also. And she's dressed up. But the flower girl is interested not that much in the groom. The flower girl is interested in the reception and the food and especially the cake. The bride comes down and she doesn't care about the food or the cake. She cares about the groom. Now I think modern weddings have sort of flipped that. They don't care about the wedding, they care about the reception nowadays. I saw a billboard, it, it said, uh, thank, thanks, for, oh, thanks for having me at the wedding, can I come to the marriage? Signed God. I thought that was clever. Thanks for inviting me to the wedding. Can I come to the marriage? But the flower girl's interest is not on the groom. The flower girl's interest is on something for herself. And God is, is waiting, as we've heard in several presentations, to have us interested not just in what we get in this gospel salvation equation, God's got that taken care of. You're going to get a mansion if you want one. You're going to get a crown if you want one. You're going to get a garden. You're going to get all that stuff. You're going to get eternal life. But are we trading one self-focused system here on planet Earth for an eternal heavenly self-focused system? The whole edifice of religion in this world and atheism is an edifice focused on self. And God wants us to change. This is the whole story of Job, right? The whole story of Job is about, does Job love God and want to serve him because doing what's right is right and he cares about God? Or is he doing what's right because his bread is buttered on the right side? And that same story is playing out today. Are we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians in love with Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and each other? Or is that just a mechanism, a system that we've created and devised to love ourselves in a subtle way? L.Y. says in Great Country this that, that religion, false religion, is a way of forgetting God that passes for remembering him. I can do all this stuff so it feels like I'm doing Jesus stuff and God stuff, but it's really a system of forgetting him. But this poem ends, is there something I might do to help? That makes me want to do something to help. The cross event, the cross principle. What about the cross in eternity future? Habakkuk 3.4 his brightness, this is speaking about Jesus, Christ's brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his side and there was the hiding of his power. When we get to heaven, so it says everything's going to be perfect, right? Everything's going to be flawless except for one thing. The only, can I say it this way, flaw in post-millennial creation. I shouldn't say it that way. In post-millennial universe, 
is Jesus. We'll have perfect skin. No dermatologists. But there will be one being who needs their scars looked at. And that's Jesus. Because we will constantly need to be reminded and want to be reminded that he did something for us. And that's, that's the secret of his power. The secret of God's power is not creating a massive universe. It's not creating this planet, the intricacies of life. The secret of God's power is that he loves us more than he loves himself and we see that in the cross. He had rays flashing from his hand and from his side and there, was the, there his power was hidden. Great Controversy 674, the last chapter. One reminder alone remains. Our Redeemer will ever bear the marks of his crucifixion. Upon his wounded head, upon his side, his hands and feet are the only traces of the cruel work that sin has wrought. Says the prophet, beholding Christ in his glory, quoting Habakkuk here again, he had bright beams coming out of his side and there was the hiding of his power. That pierced side, whence flowed the crimson stream that reconciled man to God, there is the Savior's glory. There the hiding of his power. And the tokens of his humiliation are his highest honor. Through the eternal ages, the wounds of Calvary will show forth his praise and declare his power. The cross principle won't end at the end of the millennium. We'll always be able to see that principle. E.J. Wagner says it this way, very similar. This is a present truth, United Kingdom, April 17, 1902. E.J. Wagner, his head, his hands, his feet, his side will bear the scars of the thorns the nails and the spear, the marks of his suffering and shame. These will be his glory and again, quote, the hiding of his power. And thus will boasting forever be excluded from the universe and all will with one voice unite in saying. Now he quotes Revelation chapter 5 when all those, all those united people come together. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And when was it slain again? from the foundation of the cosmos, worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the cosmos. Finally now, he's, we see him as worthy. We've stopped shifting blame from ourselves to him and we've experienced repentance fully and completely. The sanctuary is cleansed. The atonement is finally finished. Now we see him as worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We have the ability to shift blessing to God. We have the ability to give of our human divine derived power back to him. We're giving him the riches of our, our affections, our love, our adoration, the strength of our energy that we'll have in a renewed body, our intellectual strength, our moral fabric and strength, the honor that we have, the ability to have, well, all these things we're going to project to him because we see that he ultimately loved us more than he loved himself and he's drawn us into that same experience. The bride will, in fact, have transitioned over a 7,000-year process from the flower girl, I need to shift responsibility to others, to I take responsibility, and I love the Lord with all my heart. That's the experience that's waiting for us. We can be singing this song in the not-too-distant future. So the cross principle is the principle of God's character not just today, not just 2,000 years ago, but from all eternity. And in the sufferings of Christ, we see the sufferings of God and the sufferings of the Holy Spirit because they all care for us. Dear Heavenly Father, 
I confess that so many times I've sat and read your word, uh, inspired writings, and had my heart touched. And so often it feels like I return to my life, my work, my activities, and I haven't allowed that transition to go forward. I don't want to repeat that experience. I don't want to take three steps forward and 2.9 steps back. We're told that the path of the just is a shining light that goes brighter and brighter under the perfect day. And Lord, may we contemplate and gather about the cross, yes, 2,000 years ago, but as a principle of your very nature. And as we gather about that, may your goodness lead us to repentance, a repentance not to be repented of, that we'll grow up, that our love for you will be steadfast and unequivocal, and our love for others will be as your love for us. I pray that for myself, for each of us here, for each one watching online, and may we as a Seventh-day Adventist church proclaim that love to this world by what we say and what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.